Coming up, um, I was in Pastor Danny's church just two weeks ago. It is my favourite church in Australia. Uh, Edge Church in Adelaide has the excellence of Hillsong with a compassion that I don't think I've seen anywhere else. Um, It is one of the most moving, restorative, the the most wonderful uh, culture of any church in our country. And I encourage you, you're going to be deeply blessed by all of those guys, but particularly by Danny, and I would encourage you, don't miss him. It'd be great. Brought a couple of resources with me. Let me briefly simply say this. Um, From good man to valiant man, every woman needs to understand what's wrong with men. Um, Women have known known for a long time that men need help. They haven't always quite known what the problem was. This DVD explains it. Becoming a valiant man, understanding the wiring of male sexuality and why men need more help. It's not that women don't need help. It's just that the most help they need is with men. And uh, this is changing. We have more than 50,000 men in Australia and New Zealand have been through the Valiant Man program. This is an opportunity for you to share that a little more widely, explain why men need so much help. And this is the help they need. Um, This is the book form of the Valiant Man program. I've watched some very good men fail. In fact, you don't find a bad man. Most men are not bad bad men, they're good men, but they've never had discipleship in critical areas of their life, and that could be helpful. And this morning I'm going to share with you a message called Resolving the Parental Paradox, and I know that before you leave, some of you are going to say, I wish a friend had been here, I bring some of these with me, because I know before you leave, you're going to want to take that to someone and say, you have to listen to this, because this is exactly what will heal what's going on in your life. This morning it's my privilege to talk to you about one of the most simple but profound principles that has ever been presented to my heart from the Bible. Resolving the parental paradox. Now, that doesn't make sense yet, but it will in just a moment. How many of you have ever heard of Noah? Put your hand up if you've heard of Noah. Uh, see, lots of people heard of Noah. People who didn't put up your hand, um, the elders will be coming to your house this afternoon to explain to you who Noah was and give you a little lesson about that. Noah is an interesting man because at the end of his life, everybody else was dead. Um, everybody else except for his sons and their wives and his own wife. Eight people survived the flood. Why was Noah chosen out of all the people? What, what was so, so special about Noah? Well, good question. Read your Bible. Answer the difficult questions found in the Bible. And in Genesis chapter 6, in one verse, this is why Noah was chosen above everybody else. Now, Noah was a good man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Now, what a wonderful thing to say about your father. Imagine being able to say, Dad, he'd wake up every morning, say, Dad, if it wasn't for you, Dad, I'd be dead. Wonderfully blessed boys. Dad, how wonderful you are. You're such a good man. Because of you, we're still alive. You're a good man, righteous among the people of your day, and you walk with God. Dad, we love you. Question. If Noah was such a good man and these boys were so blessed by having him for their father, how come a couple chapters down the Bible, one of those really good men, uh, those really blessed boys ends up being cursed? Well, good question. Ha, read your Bible. Answers to difficult questions found right in the Bible. 
And just a couple chapters down in chapter 9, we read this. Now Noah was a man of the soil, and he proceeded to plant a vineyard. And when he became drunk, he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it across their shoulders. They walked in backwards, covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father naked. And when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. So why did this poor boy end up being cursed? Well, because his father was a bad man. See, it's a bad man that gets so drunk he doesn't know if his clothes are on or off. And that's a paradox. The same man. The only reason the boy is alive is because his father's a good man. And the reason he ends up cursed is because his father is a bad man. Paradoxical. That you can be both blessed and harmed by the same person. But did you notice it wasn't Noah who ended up being cursed? It was his son, because he didn't handle the paradoxical behavior of his own father. Doesn't sound fair to me, but it's a principle that permeates the Bible. It's not just found in one spot. I'll give you another example. In one, in one of the books of the Bible, it is a subplot of an entire book of the Bible, and that the book is 2 Samuel. Now, in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, David, who is the hero of that, of that book, 2 Samuel, David hears that his greatest problem in life, King Saul, has been killed on the battlefield. Now, what's he going to do about it? He's been hunted for years by a vicious and unfair king. Does he dance all over his grave? Woohoo, woohoo. No, no. David's a good man. He laments his death. How are the mighty fallen? Because you see, good men know how to forgive and they know how to honor. In chapter 2, the whole tribe of Judah come to David and say, David, you're such a good man. You should be the king over our tribe. David is appointed the king over Judah. In chapter 3, David starts his family. Now, it's a little different than the average family because David's got six wives. But each one of these wives starts popping out sons like peas, one after another. Six wives, six firstborn sons. Wife number one has firstborn son Amnon. Wife number three has firstborn son Absalom. And they're all growing up in the house of a really heroic good man. Well, in chapter four, David punishes the murderers of Saul's son Ishbosheth. And in chapter five, the whole of Israel come to David and say, David, you should be king over the whole nation. And he's crowned the king of Israel. And for the first time, David captures the Jebusite stronghold called Jerusalem. In chapter six, David brings in the Ark of the Covenant and sets up worship in Jerusalem for the very first time and establishes Jerusalem as the capital city of Israel. In chapter seven, God comes to David and says, Davy, you're such a good man. I'll make a promise to you. There is going to be a king reigning on the throne of Israel that's going to come right out of your body. And that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ the Bible calls him the son of David. 
Well, in chapter 8, David has one victory after another. In chapter 9, David discovers that Saul's crippled offspring, Mephibosheth, is still alive and brings him into his table and treats him like one of his own sons. Doesn't kill him. No, no. He's a good man. Treats him with care and respect. In chapter 10, David defeats the Ammonites. Is there nothing this good man cannot do? Chapter 11 is a bad day in the office. (laughs) Spots a neighbor's wife having a bath, invites her over for a game of chess. Turns into a very vigorous game of chess. He gets her pregnant. What do you do if you get the neighbor's wife pregnant? Well, bring the neighbor home from the war. He'll sleep with his wife. No one will know whose kid this is. But this is a man so loyal He's not prepared to have one night with his wife while men under his command are risking their lives on a battlefield. He sleeps on David's doorstep. And how does he repay him for that kind of dedication? He murders the guy. And you'd have to say that adultery and murder is a bad day in the office for the average man. In chapter uh, 12, Nathan, the prophet of Israel, comes and puts his bony finger in David's face and says, you, sir, are a bad man. Bad man commits adultery and murder. Well, in chapter 14, it gets very interesting. Chapter 13, 14, very interesting. You watch it now spill over into David's family. David's eldest son gets the hots for his half-sister Tamar, drags the girl into his bedroom and rapes her. What's daddy going to do about that? Well, it's not easy for daddy to discipline the eldest son for rape when he's just been exposed as an adulterer and a murderer. So daddy does nothing. But the girl has a big brother. His name is Absalom. He waits for two years for daddy to clean up the family mess. And when he doesn't, takes things into his own hands, murders his brother and skips town. Waits for two years for dad to make a phone call and get this crisis sorted out. David does nothing. Eventually, the boy agitates to be allowed to come home to Jerusalem. Dad gives him his permission. And still for two more years, still doesn't make that phone call. David may be a good man, but he's not good at resolving family crisis. And finally, in chapter 15, a very angry young man is standing in the gates of Jerusalem saying to anyone who's prepared to listen, would that I was king in Israel. In chapter 16, civil war breaks out. And by chapter 18, a young man is hanging by his hair from a tree and three javelins are sticking out of his chest. And his father is in an upstairs room crying his heart out. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, would that I could have died for you, O Absalom, my son, my son. What is that? That's a paradox. It's a paradox that a man can be such a great man of God, he's called the man after God's own heart. But he's also such a bad man, he's known as an adulterer and a murderer to this day, and here I am telling the story all over again. But did you notice It's not David who is dead because of his paradoxical behavior. It's two of his sons. They didn't handle their paradoxical father appropriately, and it was them that paid the price. See, one of the things we have to face in life is that we are marked by the environment in which we are raised. 
People don't like to hear this much sometimes. Oh, no, 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 forgetting those things that are behind. Well, you can say that text all you want. You've still been marked by the environment of your home. And if you don't realise it, you're doomed to repeat it yourself. Because you see, we are such relationships or relationship-oriented beings that the good things in our family environment have marked us and the inadequacies of our family environment have marked us. Have you ever noticed the way a baby learns a language? See, when a baby's born, one of the greatest needs a child has is to learn the ability to communicate, to learn the ability to speak. Well, there must be a big government department somewhere with lots of experts and textbooks taking care of this, because this is a big job. All these kids got to learn the language. But that's not how it happens. We are created in the image of a Trinitarian God, and we learn by reflection face to face, just the way God has done eternal experience of his being. And you just put a kid in a, in a room with a group of people. I don't know how babies ever figure out the difference between real language and Uncle Harry's but they do. They figure it out. And lying there, the little one is sucking into his environment and working this into the fabric of his own brain, his own mind and personality, so that within months you begin to hear the miracle. Mama. Dada. No. Who taught that kid to say no? Oh, no one had to teach him, mate. No, no, he just had to hang around with you for a while. That's all it took for that to happen. Because the reality is this. We are so profoundly marked by our environment that you can hear a two-year-old child utter one sentence. And in one sentence, you know if this child has been raised in London or Auckland or Sydney or Cape Town, South Africa, or in Toronto, Canada. You hear it in the lilt of accent. We so precisely suck in our environment, it flavors us to the, to the, to the degree to which I, can, I know where you come from. All I have to hear is you utter one sentence, and you are marked by your environment. Now, this is so profoundly true that healthcare professionals can trace parental impact on virtually every area of life. A good uh, healthcare professional, a good counsellor, people are struggling with their lives, they go see a counsellor, but well, the first things they're doing, they're trying to hear what's at the back of this life. What are the influences that have framed the belief systems and the behaviours of this person? Because I can't help them, I don't understand that. And they, they can see the fingerprints of parental influence on every area of life, on career choice, on who you marry, on why you marry, of if you marry, your ability to stay married, how you do your marriage, how you express intimacy, the struggles that you have with intimacy, how you parent, how you relate to people in general, your identity and your self-esteem, your propensity to alcoholism, to drug abuse, to sexual abuse, to obesity, to anorexia, to frigidity, to promiscuity, to homicidal rage, to impotent passivity. On every area of life, they see the, parent, the, influence, the influence of parental background. And God knew that. God knew that your family of origin would be profoundly important in the framing of your life. And as a result, God's got something really important to say to you about this. He knows that you have been marked, and he wants to help you with it. 
He knows that not only have you been marked, but you probably don't see it. In fact, when you talk to kids about their parents, it's remarkable. You can talk to kids come from exactly the same family, and they have totally different stories about the family environment. Because sometimes our tendency is to deify our parents. We see no wrong. Or we vilify our parents. We see no right. And our tendency is to polarize in our view of our parents, rather than having a really balanced and healthy view of where, where it is that we've been raised. And God also knew something else. He knew this, that not all of the paradoxical people lived at your house. They live at other people's houses too. And that you would bump into those paradoxical people every day of your life. They would both bless you and cause you challenges and problems. Or did you think you would marry the only person in the world whose personality, lifestyle, attitudes and behaviours amazingly, mystically, perfectly blends with yours so that you never have to face the challenge of contradictions or issues? You never have to resolve an issue, not in your marriage, oh no. Or did you think that you would go to work for someone? who lies awake at night, making sure the working environment perfectly is aligned with you and the way you do life? Or did you think you would hire people who would come to work and as they clock on each day, change extraordinarily into this person who just never presents you with a challenge? Or did you think that you would move into a neighborhood where all the neighbors have overwhelmed and overcome all paradoxical behaviors? Or did you think you would go to a church where the pastor extraordinarily, mystically, marvelously yes. knows every unstated <laughs> request. That... <laughs> You're ruining my message, sir. <laughs> he knows every unstated request. Well, you don't have to tell him anything. No, he'll phone you at exactly the right time of day. He will have anticipated your needs. and your. Did you think you would go to a home group where all of the discussions and the leadership will just be perfectly aligned with the way you would have liked to have seen it done? What kind of world do you think you live in? You live in a world where you're going to bump into paradoxical people everywhere you go. And God knew this. If you could learn the skill of managing an imperfect parent... Yeah you would have a skill that would equip you to do life well everywhere you go. And if you could not learn this in your own home, you would be butting your head against concrete walls all of your life. You'll be leaving churches, breaking friendships, breaking up marriage. You'll be, you'll be a constantly in pain and trouble because you will meet paradoxical people everywhere. Hallelujah, I am one of them. I am a paradox to my own kids and to my own wife. I was a paradox to my own congregation. I was a blessing, and at moments I would be a challenge or a problem to them because I'm not perfectly aligned or attuned to every one of their unspoken needs. So God has something to say to you about helping you with this issue of relating well to a paradoxical an imperfect parent. Would anyone like to hear what God has to say? How many, people, how many people are interested? I mean, we can have a vote because i got other messages. I can do a different one. <laughs> Who would like to hear what God has to say about hand... Okay, that's a, that's a majority. We can do this. We'll do this one. Here it comes. God's extraordinary wisdom from heaven spoken into the lives of people who need to flourish even when their parents are imperfect, 
so that you can make it anywhere in life. Here is God's wisdom from heaven to you. Brilliant, found right in the Bible. You might want to take out a piece of pen and paper, write this one down, because you could put it in top pocket. Anytime you meet a paradoxical person, pull it out. It will help you. Put it back. Uh, so here it comes. This is right out of the Bible. Funny thing is, <laughs> when I say it, you just might know it already. That would be disappointing because it didn't help you yesterday. How's it going to help me tomorrow? Um, well, here it comes. God's extraordinary wisdom for people who have to deal with imperfect parents right out of the Bible. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12. Here it comes. You shall honour your father and your mother. I do not hear a ripple of enthusiasm running across this congregation. Ah, brilliant. Just when I thought the dude was going to say something useful. <laughs> and I liked the first part of that message. I, you know, I thought, yeah, I could use this message. And just when I thought he was going to say something useful, out it comes again. Only your father and your mother. Only your father and your mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Typical Christian rhubarb. Only your mother and your father. Only your mother. Yeah, no. God's always sticking up for old folks. Don't rock the boat. Don't rock the boat. You know why God's always sticking up for old folks? It's because he's the ancient of days himself, that's why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretend your mum and dad's perfect. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Poor old Ham. You know why Ham got, 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 uh, got cursed? Because he, he didn't pretend his dad was perfect. He noticed his dad was drunken in the nutty. <laughs> you're not supposed to notice those things. You're supposed to pretend your mum and dad are perfect. Didn't you know that? He should have done a Sergeant Schultz. Walk in, see your dad drunken in the nutty. I say nothing. I say nothing. <laughs> yeah, typical rhubarb. Fair dinkum. If I told my mum and dad honestly all the things they did that hurt me in my life, they'd be slashing their wrists. That's what they'd be doing. <laughs> if I told my mum and dad all the ways they hurt me in my life, they couldn't sleep at night. <laughs> but hold on, bro. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say honour your father and your mother so they can feel good about their parenting skills. The Bible doesn't say honour your father and your mother so that they can sleep at night. It says, you shall honour your father and your mother that it may be well with you. God is concerned for you. He knows you need help. And he knows that if you never learn to do this, it will never be well with you. It's not about your mum and dad feeling good about themselves. And it's not about pretending that your mum and dad are perfect. I say nothing. No, that's not what it's about. In fact, it's quite the opposite. In this commandment, God wants you to notice. This Hebrew word, honor, is the word kabed. It means to let something be as heavy as it really is, as significant as it really is. But it is not just used in the positive sense. God is not saying, pretend that nothing but good things happen for you. God wants you to see the impact of behaviors and values and life in your family of origin. And he wants you to let every element of it be as significant as it really is, not blowing it off. Because you see, that's what we have a tendency to do. 
When people vilify their parents, what they want to say is, I'm upset because there was stuff happening with my mum and dad I didn't appreciate. And so what I have the right to do now is I get to blow off all the good stuff. I can treat it as if it never happened. And you'll do that with your wife or your husband. You'll do it with your job. You'll do it with your church. When you don't like something, you blow off all the good stuff. It's not allowed to be as heavy as it really is. Say, what if my dad went to work for 40 years and put a roof over my house? Don't you dare say that. You have no right to blow off the good stuff. You've got to let it be as heavy as it really is. God wants you to notice all the good stuff that came your way in your family of origin, and he wants you to let it be as significant and as real as it really was, and to that, add a skill. And the skill is called gratitude. Do you know one reason why people don't worship real well? is simply because they have learned to blot out the good stuff when they're upset. And so I'm not letting the good stuff be as significant as it really is, so I've got nothing to feel grateful for. I'm miserable. I look like I was baptised in lemon juice. (laughs) God says you've got to stop that. It's one of the great skills in life, is to see the good stuff. Let it be as good as it really is and add to that the skill of gratitude. It will change your life. But he doesn't want you to pretend. He wants you to go, see, this word carbet is used both positively and negatively. God wants you to notice that the stuff that happened in your life was as bad as it really was and it was as hurtful as it really was. He wants you to see it because if you don't see it, you will repeat it. It has marked you. And you'll say, oh, when I'm a parent, I'll never do that. You'll be doing it because you were marked. And if you don't honor it appropriately, honoring it means to, let, to see it for what it was and it was as difficult and unhelpful as it really was. But you've got to add to that another skill. The skill is called forgiveness. You have to learn to truly process the disappointments in your life and learn to truly forgive as you are being forgiven every hour of every day because you see you are a paradox too. And you're hoping that other people and God will find grace for you and that all of you, they'll understand you're not perfect and they will just be poor and see you, then you've got to be prepared to do it. Give and it shall be given unto you. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You've got to learn this skill. These are the two great skills in life, to let the good stuff be as good as it is and add to it the, the miracle of gratitude, to let the bad stuff be as bad as it is and add to that the miracle of forgiveness. Now... There'll be some people here for whom that's not so, so difficult. Some of you are here today and the reality is that you had pretty good parents, like me. There's not a mountain of stuff to deal with. There'll be some of you sitting here today and you say, Al, you do not realise what you're asking me to do. You have no idea how difficult, how hurtful, how damaging it was. Because some of you will be sitting here and you had a parent that was absent through divorce or somehow alienation. You've just, they've never been there for you. Maybe you, were, you had a parent who was neglectful Things that should have been taken care of were not. Maybe you grew up with a family with a parent who was deeply flawed. My wife grew up in a home where her father was a functioning alcoholic. Her mother died when she was eight. Her father married a woman to bring her into the house so that the girls would have a woman in the home. He married a woman with mental health issues. So she was raised in the home with a father who was a functioning alcoholic and a woman who needed mental health uh, care. And I see to this day the fingerprints of those issues in her life. I see them to this day because she, she was marked by that. Um, 
That's real. Some of you were raised in a home that was absolutely abusive. Some of you may have even been raised by a parent that was absolutely evil. What are you going to say about that, Al? Well, exactly the same thing. You have a deeper, you have a higher mountain to climb, but it's the same mountain. We've all got to learn to climb it. And here's one thing that may be able to help you. If it hadn't been for your parents, there's one thing you wouldn't have, and that's a life. Maybe they were bad, and they were abusive, and they were terrible, but I tell you, there's something you've got to let be as big and as significant and as wonderful as it really is. Because of them, you are alive, and because of Jesus, the best is yet to come. You may have already survived the worst that life can ever throw at a person, and you're already an overcomer, and all that lays in front of you is the glory of God, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. <clears throat> Listen, listen to what Dallas Willard had to say about this. He said, if you do not deeply appreciate the weight of the fact that you were given the gift of life, you are condemned to despising yourself, for you are the life that they generated. If you never press through your disrespect or your rejection of your parents and who they are, there will be a similar disrespect for yourself. A long and healthy existence rooted deep in the soul requires that at some level we be grateful to God for who they are, not necessarily for all the things they have done, Maybe today, you, you've been grown up in an abusive background. Maybe today would be a day to just, before you leave here, to say to God, I thank you. Thank you for my mum and dad, because here I am. And because I'm here, you can bless. God can't bless empty seats, but he can bless a life. Yeah. And by the grace of God, you've got one. Yeah. And if you let that be as big a deal as it really is, it can just begin to change your whole perception about the miracle of the life that you have. Now, I've got to say that I'm like many people. I don't have that much work to do. My mum was nearly perfect. Um, girls are like that, sugar and spice and all things nice. Boys are made out of slugs and snails and puppy dogs' tails. And so if I look back on my dad, there'd be, there was some work to do there. Um, there. There were a couple of things about my dad that I didn't like. If I look back on it, I didn't like him. Interesting thing. My dad was the kind of guy that if I upset him, he might do one or two things. He might go quiet, he might blow up. And when he went quiet, it was weird. And, on, and I tell you, this experience marked me because I can still tell you about it. When I was four years old, Dad built a kite. I loved it. Went over the park with Dad and flew it. It was fun. Dad went off to school. He's a teacher. I'm a four-year-old. I'm not going to school yet. I'm going to try to fly the kite by myself. And I can still remember in my mind the day. There's, the wind is blowing through the gum trees and it's black sky and it's roaring wind. You can't fly a kite on a day like this. And so I wrecked the kite. Now, when my dad came home and he saw the kite was wrecked and all the string was tangled and so on, this sad look came over his face. He never said a word. He never fixed the kite and we never flew it again. It's like he took a backward step from me. The fact that I can tell you about it is the, is the reality that actually marked my life. And I'll tell you an amazing thing. The first time I ever shared that story in my own church, I was 55 years old. I tell the story, and one of my staff comes up to me at the end. He said, Al, do you realize that you do that to us? I said, what? He said, that silent thing. You, when we upset you, you don't yell at us. That's not you. But what you do do is you go quiet. You don't talk. We only know that we've upset you because you won't talk. I said, I don't do that. He said, no, you do. I said, oh, you're sacked. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. But how remarkable. I tell a story from my childhood and one of my staff say, Al, it's happening now. Do you know why? Because I'd never processed that. 
That time, the time I shared that story was the first time I was beginning to realize how significantly we have the fingerprints of our parental influence wow. marking our heart. My staff see me doing it in my 50s. The other thing my dad might do is blow up in my face. The worst thrashing I ever got from my dad was for, for buying a bicycle tube. 14 years old, bought a bicycle tube. I got a paper round, earned my own money. With my money, I buy a bicycle tube. He finds out I didn't fix the plat tire. I bought a new tube. He tore a branch off a tree, gave me the worst thrashing of my life. And I thought, what's that about? You're crazy. You're a lunatic. I mean, flipped out. I wasn't smoking the tube. I was... And I never realized, I got, I got, in three minutes, I got to tell you three important things. Here's the first thing. I was doing counseling with one of my, with a woman one afternoon, and it was clear from my talk to her that she thought nothing good had ever happened in her home. And I asked her a question, have you ever done a treasure hunt? She sat down, we began to write down the good things, and the more we wrote, the more surprised she was of how much good stuff there was. Well, when she left the, the, that day, I realized I've never done that. I sat down and I began to write down all the good stuff. My father loved my mother. My father was a man of faith, a man of God. He taught me the, to believe. He took me to church. He, I watched my father live the faith. There was a thousand things I could write. And the more I wrote, the more moved. I, I'd, I'd always felt a little bit disconnected from my dad because when he belted me when I was 14, I felt like, who could ever have anticipated that? Buy a bicycle tube, get a belting. Did, couldn't figure that out. Couldn't figure it out until I took my dad home to his old hometown one time and he showed me all his stories. He showed me the school he grew up in. He showed me the place where a kid drowned. He showed me the little white house where his mother had raised nine children as a single parent. And all the kids had jobs and he used to herd cows and they'd all bring their money home and give it to their mum. And the more I heard, the more I understood that moment. You see, dad, my dad wasn't raised in the 60s where a kid could have a, a paper round and spend the money on himself. He was raised in a nine-child, single-parent family in a gold mining town where every halfpenny yeah. made the difference. Wow. And, and one day I bought a bicycle tube and I pressed a fear button in his background. Yeah. See, my father has a background too, and I don't know what it is. And so sometimes I trip the landmines in his family of origin, in his experience, and it blows up in my face, and I don't know what that was about. But you see, when I heard that, I realized that my dad is really a very precious man. He's just not perfect. And I wrote down a list of all the good things, and I sent him a letter, and the letter I said, Dad, I've never honored adequately all the good things that you've ever done, but here is, I want to tell you. And I wrote them all out in the list, and the last thing I said on the bottom of, of the letter was, Dad, whatever stability I have in me, I owe that to you, and I sent it off to him. Now, my mum says, when he got it, he'd been in a bad mood for three days. <laughs> but when he got the letter, it just brightened his heart, and he wanted to go out and buy a picture frame and hang it up on the wow. kitchen wall, because wow. it was on church letterhead paper. It was like a note from God, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, mum said, you can't do that, Roger. But you know, the amazing thing is, my father never mentioned the letter to me. He never came back and said, I've got your letter, that was lovely. But it didn't matter, because I'd let the good stuff be as heavy as it really was. Yeah. I fell in love with my father. And from that day, every time I met my father, I would wrap my arms around him and kiss him right in the face. Now, he never knew what to do with that. He was, <laughs> was like a little telephone pole. <laughs> but I let the good stuff be as good as it really was. And out of it, I came to love my father. He's, one of my, he's now my hero, because now I understand things I didn't understand before. And I appreciate 
that no, he, he wasn't perfect. He was just amazing. He was just wonderful. And because of that, the good stuff is allowed to be as good in me as it was. And I look at some of the bad stuff and say, well, I really do need to learn how not to repeat that because I don't want to be a paradox more than I have to be in the life of my kids. Now, I've got more to share, but I can't. If you feel there's someone, you know someone, who could get help, get them one of these, take it to their house, make them play. It could save their life. Father, in the name of Jesus, this is my prayer for this congregation today. That today in church we might learn a simple but powerful lesson. When I'm dealing with imperfect people, let the good stuff be as good as it really is and add to that gratitude. Let the bad stuff be as bad as it is and add to that forgiveness. And Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done. May our lives prosper. Let marriages prosper. Lord, let our parenting prosper. Let our businesses prosper. Let our nations prosper as we learn to live in the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Lovely to see you today. Oh, yeah. Okay.